This is Alumni Allowed, a podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career path, the ins and outs of their current position, and the career advice they have for students. This series is sponsored by the Graduate Center's Office of Career Planning and Professional Development. Carly Batiste, a PhD candidate in biological anthropology here at the Graduate Center. In this episode, we'll hear from Drs. Rachel Weintraub-Brevda, Sarana Belgrave, and Maria Strangis. Rachel received her PhD from the Graduate Center's psychology program in the Cognition, Brain, and Behavior subprogram. Maria got her PhD in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology program, and Sarana earned her PhD in the Psychology program's Behavioral Neuroscience subfield. This panel was originally held in February 2021. At that time, Rachel was the Education and Outreach Program Manager at NYU Langone's Center for Cognitive Neurology. Sorana was the STEM Research Manager at CUNY K-16 Initiatives, and Maria was Manager of the Science Research Mentoring Program at the American Museum of Natural History. Can each of you introduce yourselves, your current position, and kind of what that entails? Hi, I'm Maria Strongus, and I was a CUNY PhD student based at City College in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. I graduated in 2018, and I am currently the manager of the Science Research Mentoring Program at the American Museum of Natural History, which is a program where high school students work with scientists to do scientific research for a year. So we do some courses, we do workshops with the scientists and with the youth. That's, a, I guess, a, a quick, brief summary. Hi, my name is Sarana Belgrave. I am also a CUNY baby. I did my undergrad with CUNY at Hunter College, and I did my PhD work in behavioral neuroscience at the GC. My home school was Hunter, though. That's where my lab was. That's why I did all my work. Currently, I'm a STEM research manager for... K-16 initiatives, which is a unit that's based at CUNY central office. I run a program called STEM Research Academy that is geared towards giving high school students the opportunity to do research during the summer and to also take a college now course during the spring. I also wear a couple of other hats. I teach introductory biology courses at Hunter College as well. Hi, I'm Rachel Weintraub-Brevda. I did my undergrad at Brooklyn College, and then I did my PhD at the Grad Center in Psychology and Cognition, Brain, and Behavior. I graduated in 2017, and I started working in administration and education, and so I was supporting grad students and postdocs who were doing their neuroscience degrees at NYU. And then just recently, I switched over to the Center for Cognitive Neurology, and I'm working on building the trainee community here as well. So while working with clinician scientists now, as well as students and postdocs, and also some doing some outreach. So working with people in the community to sort of expand our our reach. So could each of you trace the path from the PhD to your current position? How did you land where you did? And did you initially want to go into academia or not? Sure. Just a little bit of background. I've been in research since about 2003. I worked in a research animal facility 
worked in different labs, all in neuroscience, before I even applied to a PhD program. So by the time I finished my program, I was tired of bench work. <laughs> I love it. I still love it, but I needed a break. So I sort of did a jump in a completely different direction. I had a great bio foundation, but I also have a pretty significant psych foundation in terms of my content knowledge. So I was able to get a postdoc in a psychiatry department at Downstate Medical Center. And that was a huge learning experience for me, working directly with patients. That was sort of like my first step out of the PhD. Learned a lot. I loved it, but I learned that it's not necessarily a field that I wanted to continue in. So I stayed there for about two years. And then my next jump was into sort of higher admin, because throughout the course of my PhD, even to now, uh, I love teaching. I started out as being required to teach for the PhD program, which was terrifying at first. And then I realized that I really enjoy it. Being in front of a, a classroom and engaging with students, I love it. So I decided to sort of go in that direction since the market for full-time faculty positions is challenging. You know, in New York, it's almost kind of like trying to find a pink unicorn <laughs> to find a full-time faculty position. So did higher admin, moving back into the CUNY world, into a slightly lower level position than where I am now, where I got my feet wet with higher admin, science, education, administration, and program management which I found is something that I flourish in specifically when it comes to bringing science to students and people that are not necessarily scientists. I really enjoy sort of sharing my spark with them. So yeah, that's where I am now. I started in a position at CUNY at K-16, helping to run a science fair that is a regional science fair in New York City that caters to high school students, as well as coordinating the program that I currently manage. So I've been there for about three and a half years and I love it. For me, I realized at some point during my PhD training that I didn't want to stay in academia in the the sort of pure sense. Similar to Sarana, I realized that the lifestyle maybe wasn't for me. And so along with some friends, we put together this panel of people to talk about how they had a PhD, but chose other fields. And so it kind of got me thinking about other opportunities that, that I might be interested in. Working at NYU in, in the Neuroscience Institute was what my first job out of my PhD, and it was great. I realized that what I really liked to do was to help people figure out what they want to do as well. And, you know, whether that's academia or consulting or working with students. And I was there for a few years. It was really great. And I learned a lot. And what I learned was that there are all these transferable skills that we have that we get during our training and that we hone during our training and PhD. So being able to prioritize different projects, being able to eloquently write an email. (laughs) So all of these skills that I felt like I developed during my PhD training, I thought were really helpful in my career trajectory. Now I switched over to a more clinical department where I work with both clinician scientists and and basic science researchers interested in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. And I do a lot of grant writing, which is also something, you know, you develop during grad school. So all in all, I would say figuring out the the transferable skills during grad school and seeing what sort of makes you happy, as as Rana said, where your happy place is. So I entered 
the PhD, not sure that I wanted to go into an academic career, but also not completely decided on what I did want to do. So before going into the PhD, I had been working as an after-school teacher for fifth and sixth graders for a couple of years and knew that I liked that, but wanted to kind of explore other things. And then during my PhD, I really found myself being drawn to outreach opportunities and to teaching opportunities and to like all these little side things. And I, I liked the research that I was doing and was really enjoying many aspects of that research, but also found that there was something that wasn't satisfied in the research and that I really kept looking for these other paths on the side. And what I really liked about the research was coming up with cool new ideas and the autonomy that I had to pursue them and all of that. And I, you know, I made my way through the more technical things, but it wasn't where I got that spark that Sarana mentioned. And so I found that I kept doing these volunteering for the New York Academy of Sciences and volunteering for this and doing that. And at some point I was part of a group that started up a women in science group at City College. And that I felt like matched a lot of my interests. And I started up a women in science mentoring program within that. I think that helped me really solidify that that was the kind of work that I was interested in doing. So that led me in a clearer path than I had had before into my current job, which when I finished, well, actually before I finished my PhD, I started this job and overlapped for a couple months, which was chaos. <laughs> I don't recommend if, if you can avoid that. It's a nice problem to have, but it was exhausting. But yes, yeah, so, so building up some of the research skills and the collaboration skills and understanding the importance of a lot of these technical sides, but also finding that I really, really enjoyed that outreach component. Great. And what did the job search process and interview process look like for each of you? Where did you find these positions? How did you approach tailoring your documents? And how did you navigate that whole job search and interviewing process? So as I said, I, I overlapped, which I was very fortunate and felt very lucky to be able to, to have that, that opportunity. And I initially heard of this job that I have now, first through word of mouth, and then that led me to the museum, the American Museum of Natural History's website, and I found the applications there. But first somebody told me about it, because it was actually a couple of months before I was getting really serious about my job search. So that was great. And the, the position, it required a PhD, and then it required all this knowledge of mentoring in science education, which even though that wasn't my research focus, those were the things I had been doing on the side. In the interview process, I had a phone interview, I had a Skype interview, and then I had a four-hour in-person interview where I met with a lot of people. So that was the interview process for my current position. So as I was sort of nearing the end of my PhD, I actually had a baby while I was writing my dissertation. So I was you know, thinking about juggling lots of things. And there was a lot of sleepless nights in writing my dissertation. And so I, I kind of tried to juggle writing my dissertation while also looking for a job because I wanted to work and have a paycheck. And so I looked everywhere. There was word of mouth. I actually found my job through Indeed. I looked at different groups I was a part of to see if anyone had posted. Like I, I really tried to search for lots of different things. I knew what core things I was interested in, but in terms of like where I was working, I was open to different possibilities, which I think is also, which for me was important. I think that's good to keep an open mind because you don't really know always what you're interested in doing. I interviewed at a few different places to get a sense of also like what I was looking for to really hone it down. For NYU, there was a phone interview 
And then there was like a half day or full day marathon of meeting lots of people and (laughs) interviewing with lots of different people. And I mean, I, I would say because I was looking at lots of different places, the thing that I would say when, when applying is to look at what the job application says and try to modify your CV to match it as best you can and your cover letter to match it to really emphasize what they're looking for. And so for me, I can say that similar, I think to Maria, a lot of my side projects were what got me this job. So I know that my boss had said that she was really excited by the fact that I put together this panel of people who had a PhD that went on to do other things because that was similar to what I would be doing in this, in the current position. So I know I emphasized that because it was an education role. When I was applying maybe for like teaching positions, I would, I would emphasize my teaching history when it was like a writing position, the writing fellowship that I had. So there were just different things that you could emphasize of your career path, depending on where you're applying. Again, my advice would be just keep an open mind because you don't always know what you're going to be excited by. And similar to Maria, my, my position, they said it was PhD preferred. Having that is definitely helpful and sort of gives you a leg up. My background is in cognitive neuroscience, and I was moving to a place that I was working with students and postdocs in neuroscience. So I could relate to them. I could understand the lingo. It was also really helpful to be able to create events for them. Now I'm writing grants in that realm. So it's giving that background is really important. So I utilized two paths. The first job that I had out of my PhD at Downstate was through my network. I ended up reaching out to some of the other people in my cohort and I let them know that I was on the hunt (laughs) for a position and I was ready. And one of my cohort members was part of this team and referred me to the person who would be my boss. So that interview process involved a phone interview and then a follow-up in-person interview, which was followed by another one. (laughs) So I had a one-on-one with my immediate supervisor and then I met the team. So that was pretty standard. I used my CV in that process. And since it was a referral, I think a lot of that initial filtration process that a lot of CVs and resumes go through, I was able to sort of like hop over it, which was a benefit. So I am a big, big advocate for pulling on your network. If you know people in your field or you have met people at conferences or you are familiar with people who know other people, there's no harm in asking. And I've learned that throughout the course of my career trajectory. It's a closed mouth, does not get fed, ask. So I've held on to that, but pulling on my network was something that I lean on all the time. For my current position, I went through the traditional interview process very much like you did, Rachel. I found my position through an online platform, the RFCUNY job listings. I also had set up alerts on a lot of other platforms that would alert me to jobs that fit a specific description or had key vocabulary in the title so that I could apply to those. I also was very I guess, regimented in the way I was doing it. I set up folders with different versions of cover letters and different versions of my CV or if a resume was necessary to do much of what Maria and Rachel spoke about, tailoring what you were presenting or selling yourself with your experience with certain things highlighted or emphasized based on what the position was. 
And something that I learned a little late in the game, but I implemented was not only trying to tailor your cover letter and your statement of purpose or these sorts of narratives that you submit, also, it's really key to include the vocabulary that is used in the job descriptions, because there are certain things, certain terminology, certain jargon that are very specific to the positions. And if it's relevant to your experience, absolutely include that exact verbiage, because there are some places that actually use computer tech to screen. You want yours to ping. <laughs> so including those is something that's really important. The interview process for my position was sort of panel style. I came in after a phone interview and met with all the people that I would be working with. That was the general style of it. I just want to echo and to amplify what Sarana was just saying about using your network. One of the greatest pieces of advice that I got when I was starting to really think deeply about what came next for me was when you figure out what you want to do, make sure that everybody around you knows it. Because if they just know what you're looking for, they might happen upon it randomly and just send it on to you. And you can do the same for other people as well and really build those connections. But just tell people if you know what you want to do, or if you have an idea of what you want to do, let people know. And then using your network in all kinds of ways. I didn't mention, but when I was in the interview process, I also leaned on my network a lot to try and understand what this job really was because, you know, job postings are short. They don't tell you everything. So I leaned on people that I knew that already worked at the museum so that I could highlight the things that I had done that were relevant. And sometimes it feels like cheating to lean on your networks. And it is an inequitable thing. It is a problem. Try and expand your networks so that we can connect more and more people in that way. Yeah, absolutely. When is the right time to start applying? How do you gauge when you should start the job search and writing up, but also looking to something in the future? So I started looking when my mentor and I were seeing eye to eye on when I would defend because <laughs> there can be huge differences of opinion <laughs> on when the defense date can and should be. So once we had sort of like a timeline of when I would be defending-ish, I started looking not aggressively to apply, but looking to see what was available. What were the job descriptions available that matched the interests that I thought I had? so that I could see what they were looking for, what I'd already built as a foundation for myself translated into this position. So once I had an idea of my options, I started applying to positions that I thought that I wanted, which was roughly about three months out from my defense date. Something that I learned, which was sort of a hard lesson, but it's a necessary lesson, is that it is not easy. And having stick to and persistence is absolutely necessary. Not to say that I was positive the entire time, but I kept at it. I maybe applied to 50 or 60 positions, to be quite honest. And there were weeks where I was like, I was like, I'm doing this. I have my 20 ounce coffee with an extra espresso shot and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a ton of these out. And I did, um, but then there were weeks that had lulls because I just didn't have the mental real estate to do it, but you cycle back and you keep doing it. So over the course of those three to four months, 
For me, I gave birth in April and I defended in September and it was an interesting time. And I think back on that time and I kind of set myself a schedule where I would apply for a job a day. I needed to like put myself on a schedule because you have those times and you're just feeling very dejected. And so for me, my process was to just, okay, send something out. You know, I could check it off my box that I did that for that day. But there were lots of things that came, opportunities that that happened because of that. So find the process that works for you. It won't be the same as it is for other people, but to find something that works for you, I think it's really critical. So that, that was my process. But one thing I will say now that I work with a lot of grad students and sort of trying to help them figure out their pathway is that when you start looking will oftentimes depend on factors for you. So certain fields like postdocs, you start looking for very early which is different than if you're going to work in administration, let's say, which will be a shorter turnaround. Similarly, if if you are a foreign national student, there's a lot of differences with visa status. The advice I would give you based off of my own experience, as well as working with so many other people, is to figure out what your personal conditions are and to figure out a schedule and a system that works for you and your career path. I'll just add a little piece, which is that something that surprised me was that, you know, a lot of academic positions and postdocs, like there, there are deadlines associated with them. A lot of jobs, not in academia, like if you see it, you apply. So this strategy that Sarana is talking about of having resumes ready, having CVs ready is a really powerful one because you don't know how long that's going to be up. You don't know when it's going to be filled. So if you see it, you should just apply. So when I applied, I was like in my early stages of starting to browse and look at things. And I saw it and I was like, oh, cool. I'll keep that in mind. And then it was like, no, you can't just keep it in mind. You have to apply now if you want to do this thing, which thankfully several people in my network pushed me to do because I was like, okay, cool. That looks like a good option. I'll get back to that. That's not how it works. Yeah, you got to go for it. Definitely. A couple of people are asking what keywords would you suggest looking out for or that you use for your alert? What kind of keywords or buzzwords should you look out for that maybe aren't directly science communication? Think about what your field is or the bigger sort of umbrella area that you're looking for and read a few descriptions so that you see what sort of jargon is relevant currently, because the jargon will change over the years, depending on what's current and what's important at that time and what the current initiatives are at that time, especially if you're looking at outreach and and very student or pedagogy or workshop program-based things, it changes. So do a bit of the homework first before you try to identify exactly which terms you're gonna use. The ones that I currently use are STEM advocacy, program development, curriculum development, program implementation. These sorts of things describe the things that I do and the things that I like. So they'll most likely be included in positions in terms of the skills needed or the expectations for that position. So that's how I would frame thinking about what sort of verbiage you're using. And honestly, be old school about it. Make a list. You can sit and think about it, but as you move through the world, you talk to people, you go to conferences, you attend classes, you read articles, you listen to the news or current events or podcasts, keep some sort of list and you add to it so that when you're in the moment pulling together the resume or 
tailoring it or customizing it, you have this resource that you've built for yourself over time to lean on. Because sometimes in the moment, it's difficult. Make a cheat sheet for yourself. And I think there are the words that you search on Indeed or things like that, which I think this list that Sarana is talking about is ideal for that. And then there's what words you put in your resume, because there are a lot of companies that use these resume screeners. And I think that those words, they're based on the job description. So read the job description really carefully. If they keep using that word mentorship, put mentorship on your resume. If they keep using mentoring, put it as mentoring, like even at that level. I think, you know, education was definitely there. I think in thinking about the type of job that you want, the words will kind of come to you and you'll start searching them just because it's, it's what you're looking at your own history and your own resume. And you're like, oh, I really like, you know, writing or something like that and um, advocacy. And so I think the words, it will come naturally to you when you're kind of looking through your own resume, the things that you enjoy doing. But uh, yeah, they, they do change over time. So I would definitely recommend sort of updating them. The other thing I, I would add is that as much as I did use keywords in the search, I also really loved expanding my network by just randomly connecting with people on LinkedIn. And the reason why I did that was I would message and say, oh, you know, we have this in common, but I also did it with people I didn't have things in common with because they post for their position. So if I had an opening at my department, I would, I would share it because I want someone to join my team. Right. And so if I'm interested in a certain field, I would start connecting with those people who are in that field because I would want to see when they're posting something. And so that would be my recommendation. It is true that you can search like on Indeed, as I mentioned, I got my job, but I also think that you can use LinkedIn in a really good way to connect with people who might be posting things that you might be interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of about the non-research related activities that you guys were talking about. Did you do any more structured stuff like internships or anything, or how did you find these other gigs? Because it sounds like a lot of you are saying that it, it was kind of those things that really got you the job. So how did you find those opportunities and fit that in with the rest of the PhD experience? There were a few different things that I did outside of my general research. The first one was, I mentioned before, I put together some friends, a panel of people to talk about their career paths after they graduated. So similar to what we're doing now. And it was really helpful to meet those people, but also to sort of get the experience of organizing. And, and I mentioned, you know, when I applied for my job, my supervisor told me that that wasn't that really stood out to her. So that was informal. It was just something that we did sort of on our own. And so you could have those opportunities that you could create. I also volunteered in mental health settings because for me, when I was working in the lab, it was just kind of isolating at times. And so I wanted to feel like I was getting back. And so I started volunteering with a mobile crisis team. And I, I just tried to find different ways of working with people in a clinical setting. And I think that has been really helpful in my current position where I work in a clinical department and that really stood out to them. So that was more formal where I had to reach out to an organization and request to volunteer. And there was you know, a more formal process for that outside work. I also took advantage of the CUNY Writing Across the Curriculum Fellowship, which really helps my writing skills and tutoring skills and all of that. And I also taught a lot. <laughs> Similar to Serana, I really enjoyed teaching. And so I, I definitely took advantage of the CUNY system for that as well, which was also a more formal process. 
So I would say there was a mix, I think, of formal and informal opportunities that I tried to take advantage of during graduate school to see what other things I might be interested in. And all of those, not only did I help shape what I'm interested in, but they also sort of gave me that leg up in different environments. Yeah, I also, I did a lot on the side. And part of that was because my advisor was really supportive of that. And I know that if your advisor is not supportive of you doing extra things on the side, that can be really, really tough. There are ways around that, but I know that that makes it a lot harder. We live in a city that has a ton of science outreach going on. So a lot of places are looking for volunteers and a lot of places are looking for people in paid part-time kind of gigs. So carving out time for that is a challenge. For me, I felt like I needed to do that to stay motivated in my research. So it it was extra time, but it also made the research possible in a way, because sometimes it feels like, why am I doing like a second job on top of my PhD so I can get another job? And I do want to stress that while these side things put, at least for me, put me in a good position for my job, the work that I did in the research was also relevant. So, you know, leaning into collaborations and coordinating field trips and all of the things that go into doing a PhD, like those are also relevant. And there's an art to how you present that to be, to connect with the jobs that you want. So it's not all about what you're doing on the side, though those things help. And with those things on the side, some of them I created like through the City College Women in Science group. I got very active in 500 Women Scientists, which is another organization. And I think through that, I got my name out into the community I wanted to get my name out into a little bit more. So, you know, finding things that you care about and enjoy, and then finding the things that you care about and enjoy, and then doing those things in a way that makes you better at them, because that puts you then in a position to get better jobs doing the things that you enjoy. So recognizing that I like this, but I also want to be good at this thing that I like and following that path. I just wanted to add a little bit to what both Maria and Rachel were saying. Something that I found useful because when you're doing a PhD, time is so valuable. You devote so much time to actually doing the research, doing coursework, reading. There's so little time for other things that I found it really necessary to use what time that was left over as purposefully as possible. So what I found was helpful also is the time that you're actually doing the things that are structured and required of you, whether you're in a class or you're, you're at a job, if you can find opportunities within those that can help you grow and flourish in the direction that you want to go, that's also really valuable. You're using your time effectively and you can take that experience and include it on your CV or your resume that can better what you present to positions that you want. For instance, I spent a lot of time in the lab and I love to teach. And with that comes mentorship in a lot of ways. So during my lab time, I spoke to my mentor and told her, you know, these are the things that I like to do. And I had a very supportive mentor. So she allowed me to teach more classes and also to take high school students into our lab and train them. So it was obviously great for her because she was applying for grants that facilitated that relationship in the lab, gave her support for her research, but also support for this sort of outreach. But it also allowed me to be able to flex those muscles, to build those skills, to build those relationships with students. And that not only helped me in the context of my research and being a mentor, but it also helped in the soft skills that I was able to flex constantly in my teaching 
which like we said, it's sort of like a feedback loop. You're building these skills with the intention to use them or apply them in other areas of your life and it feeds on each other. So that's something that I think is really, really valuable. And also I wanted to echo volunteerism is so big and it's so good. My very first lab position ever, I was offered because I volunteered for a year. And at the end of a year, I was offered a paid position full time. So you all kind of touched on these things a little bit, but what kind of translational, transferable skills that you got through the PhD that are applicable to any kind of outside of academia position? And how does that fit into your day-to-day tasks now? I think multitasking and one of the pieces of advice that my PA gave me was to have projects at different stages. So you would have something that you're designing an experiment while you have something that's ongoing, while you have something in the writing stages. So like you could focus on different things. And if you kind of get sick of doing one thing, you can switch to something else. And I feel like that's been really helpful here because I, I like coming up with new ideas and being creative with, with my programming. And so I can have lots of different programs for different groups and thinking about them in different ways. So this sort of multitasking has been really helpful. Being organized while doing it, though, is very critical. <laughs> I also think data analysis has been really nice. So we tend to think of like, you know, you're working on one experiment, you know how to do that, but, but you'd be surprised the skills that you pick up while doing that sort of data analysis and how you can transfer it to other things. So like I started analyzing data on things that I had no experience with because I know how to do data analysis from my PhD. And so I would say that's another transferable skill. And then writing, writing is always really nice. Those are, are some of the things I would recommend. Also emotional intelligence, really, really important. Not something that necessarily that you can hone in the same way as you would like data analysis, but I think it's really important. And with emotional intelligence, the collaborating and navigating complicated co-authorships and collaborations and the teamwork that comes into all of projects. The skills that I built there have been incredibly, incredibly helpful for the work that I do now. But also the data analysis comes in in kind of surprising ways sometimes, just in terms of, you know, being able to very quickly understand what is going on with our application demographics or our school breakdown, stuff like that, that not what I was doing before at all, but it's a lot easier because of what I did before. But also that that long-term planning, like you mentioned multitasking and it's multitasking and also being able to like think many, many steps in advance. And it's almost strategic planning. It's not called that, but it is really similar to strategic planning. So definitely that long-term thinking, that multitasking, that sort of multimodal thinking, you're trained to critically think about things, but you're also trained to function in a way that in a lot of the time you are the central cog and you need to keep many things going at the same time with feedback from them. And I think that's something that's really valuable in any career path that you take. Something that I found to be really valuable also is no matter what your content area, we sort of have been trained to aggregate information understand it, analyze it, and sort of synthesize a way in which to express it to show value in a lot of ways. And I think that that sort of general framework works in a lot of fields. 
having been trained to do that during the course of my PhD directly speaks to the way I formulate my lectures and my lesson plans for courses, because that's essentially what we do. We distill information from larger, more complex sources to present it in a way that it's manageable. And that also directly speaks to the outreach that I do because of the populations that I target, which are people that are typically non-scientists or they have interest in science. So distilling that sort of super complex, heavy jargon-based info into something that's palatable um, is something that we are intimately trained in doing during the course of our PhD. And it's, it's invaluable throughout the course of life, no matter where you go or what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. What is your favorite part of your current position? And what is something that is a bit on the other end of the spectrum and challenging to face? Well, one of my favorite parts is directly working with the teens, the students. That's a lot of fun. And the same stuff that I loved about research is the like brainstorming, coming up with new ideas of how we can serve our audiences better and that big picture thinking is something that I've always enjoyed. Something that I am not thrilled with is I work at a really enormous institution and it's different from CUNY, but we all know that CUNY's got its bureaucracy. The museum in most places do as well. And navigating that is my least favorite part. I would say my favorite part is, is working with the people I work with. So working with students, postdocs, and really seeing that I'm helping them. <laughs> and it just was so nice. And so I just, I really think working with people is, is what I love doing. That's part one. And part two is being creative. So I can do the stuff that I know how to do, but I love being able to flex the muscle of thinking what I want to do next. And so having the space to do that is really nice. And like the independence, autonomy, like all of that is really nice. Some of the things I don't love is I work in a large place and of course there's bureaucracy. And so sometimes it's fun and challenging to navigate and figure out it's like a maze, almost like how to get to where I want to go. But sometimes it's really frustrating when you are supporting other people and you're working in a large organization that's just bound to happen. The things that I enjoy about what I do, I love seeing my students grab onto something and be excited. Like I live for it. When there's a student that comes up to me and says, I did such and such and I went into the field and oh my God, and I touched a worm. It was nasty, but it was great. Like I live for those moments. That's literally my fuel to get through the not so savory bits. So that student interaction, that student rapport, that relationship you build with them, absolutely love it. That's one of my favorite, favorite things. And also the second part of it is similar to Rachel in being able to flex creativity. So I am regimented in many ways. As a trained scientist, you have to be, but I love being a creative, not just being creative, but a creative person. So I get to pull some of that into the way I teach, the way I present information. I'm able to pull that creativity in to the way I design programs and curriculum and present it to grab the attention of perhaps a grantor, a funder. So that aspect of being a creative in the position that I am now is also deeply satisfying. 
how did you approach talking to your advisor or other mentors that you've had at academia about leaving academia? It sounds like a lot of you had supportive mentors. If someone maybe is anxious about that conversation, how to navigate that critical relationship with your advisor or find mentors outside to support you. So my mentor found out that I didn't want to stay in academia in an event very much like this one. It was one where I was attending about non-traditional use of a PhD. And I raised my hand and asked a question to the facilitator. And I didn't know that she was in the back of the room. And that was when she found out. Not the ideal. (laughs) But we had a conversation later about it. And I expressed to her the things that I expressed to you guys, where my passions were, where my interests were. And I guess in my expression of what I wanted to do and what she's seen me do, because, you know, a PhD advisor is someone in a unique position in your life. You've been with this person for five years or more, so they know you. So she understood and she supported me. I did look for external mentors, not to replace, but to add to my network of people. And I was able to do that by just looking for people that were in positions that I eventually saw myself in way down the line, people that were directors of programs or directors of research centers. And I reached out just like what Maria and Rachel were saying, reaching out on LinkedIn to these people. And I was able to get informational interview. People love to talk. That's why we get to come to these panels. And if you show the interest, they'll talk to you if they have the time. So I was able to build up my network in that way. This completely depends on your relationship with your advisor, but if it's possible, work it in early and in small steps, maybe of like, I'm thinking about these other things, kind of building it up. I will say on the informational interviews, definitely come prepared to those, have a list of questions that you want to ask, you know, do your research. What does that person actually do? Don't come in and just say like, so talk to me, make it a little bit more structured. Yeah. Just to add to my own experience, my PI was really understanding. I did not put it in small steps. It was kind of that meeting where I was just like, this is what I'm thinking. And I I sort of laid out the reasons why I I didn't want to stay in academia, at least in the pure sense. Because I still think of myself as working in sort of academia because I work with students and postdocs, but, you know, not, not having my own lab. And she was very supportive and it was very helpful to have that conversation and to know that I can sort of bounce back. Because, you know, you could talk to people in your life, but to have someone that you really respect their opinion also can help you. So it's actually a really good conversation. But of course, like Maria said, it very much depends on the relationship that you have with your PI and only you would know that, but I would definitely recommend thinking about how to approach it. The other thing I would say, I think making sure that you have people that you could reach out to for different things is really important to sort of expand your reach, but also understand that you can't get everything from the same person You can go to your PI for certain types of help, but you're going to need other people. So you might want someone for emotional support. You might want someone to write you letters of recommendation. You might want someone to give you access to opportunities. You want to expand your network to diversify it enough that you can get these different things. That's a wrap for this episode of Alumni Allowed. I want to thank Sarana, Maria, and Rachel for sharing their experiences working in science communication and outreach positions. Remember to stay tuned for more episodes of Alumni Allowed, published every two weeks during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe via Apple or Google and you'll automatically be notified of new episodes. 
also check out our Twitter and career planning website at cuny.is careerplan for more updates from our office or to make appointments with our career counselors. Thanks for listening and see you next time.